0: Welcome to BIO, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. BIO is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm BIO member Jenny Skoog in New York City. On each episode, we talk with biographers about their work. This time Yunta Huang talks about his book Daughter of the Dragon, Anna Mae Wong's Rendezvous with American History, published by Liveright in August 2023. We recorded our interview on October 30th, 2023 via Zoom. Yunta Huang, welcome to BioPodcast. For those who have never heard of her, who is Anna Mae Wong?
1: She was a uh... Very famous Chinese actress. Uh, she rose in the silent film era and continued her performance extraordinary, you know, career uh, in Hollywood. But of course, despite her beauty, talent, and amazing tenacity, sta you know cards really stack against her due to racism. In, in put it in a very simple way, and so my book is really about her amazing career. But overall, I was more interested as well, I think, in the background story, you know, how she rose uh, against the background of all the racial discriminations against minorities uh, in Hollywood and American culture in general. So that's the story.
0: Yeah, you did a really great job of establishing historical context early on. In fact, you talk a little bit about the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882. How did this affect Anna May Wong's family?
1: Amy Wan was born in uh in LA in her father's uh, laundromat, literally. So she was a daughter of a Chinese laundromat. And the late 19th century was not a great time for Chinese immigrants. Uh today is slightly better, but still you know, not a great time for ethnic minorities, as you know. Only three decades, you know, before she was born, there was this infamous uh, Chinese massacre in LA, Los Angeles, in which 18 Chinese were tortured, lynched, and burned, and killed. So we're talking about only like three decades prior to that. So she was born in the midst of this very kind of virulent uh, anti-Chinese environment.
0: You kind of touched on the experience of a minority or of an ethnic minority. And there are so many parallels in this book to the Black experience in this country, especially on screen. White or European actors would act in yellow face, similar to blackface. And so Anna Mae Wong found herself, you know, in the beginning uh, stages of of the movie culture. Um, How was her career affected by this racism?
1: Oh, deeply. I mean, you're absolutely right in a sense. uh, Some of the experiences for ethnic minorities are totally comparable, although we also need to draw a line somewhere. So for an example, as you said, uh, yellow face, the same as black face or red face, you know, playing Indian so-called and Jew face as well. So she was living at a time. This is kind of the irony of her life story and the irony of America in some sense that she was living at a time when somebody like her will be considered too Chinese uh, to play a Chinese role because, you know, the standard in the industry's uh, practice was, like you said, what I call the racial ventriloquism. Playing, you know, these uh, colored characters was really the ticket for most Caucasian artists to join the American club. In order to make it, you need to play the, uh, these ethnic, other kind of ethnic characters. Uh, as soon as she entered uh, Hollywood, she realized. It was so difficult to get a part uh, because she's Chinese, while well, most of the roles will go to uh, Caucasian actors and actresses. And so she learned from that. And uh, that's the reason, for instance, after about a decade, uh, she became quite kind of successful playing big parts in this China-related or Asian-related films. Uh, she was sick and tired of it. And when opportunity came, she left for... Uh, for Europe right in 1928 so joining the uh, the exodus of um, non-white you know artists such as Josephine Baker Paul Robeson uh, and all that went to Europe in order to be accepted or recognized as American because in America she was just looked at as uh, Chinese who will be too Chinese to play a Chinese role and going to Europe actually gave her an opportunity to really to showcase her talent
0: and this is where her career really took off. Can you tell us why you think going to Europe made her career so successful on a world scale? In other words, she was much more seen as an American while in Europe than she ever was in America. Can you tell me why you think she got more opportunities there because of her her race?:
1: So she arrived in Germany during this Weimar Republic era, right? As you know. This is like uh, about it for about a decade, there was a sudden explosion of creativity in art, music, uh, film. This, of course, this right, right before the rise of the Nazis. So there was a period of, I think, sort of kind of, I mean, European environment was very different in a sense, its attitude toward Chinese, for instance, because in Germany, there was a very small group of Chinese immigrants, uh, even in the UK, called Limehouse, you know, deeply changed racism against Chinese was there, definitely. And some of the films uh, she played in definitely, you know, touched um, that theme. But at least, I think compared to Hollywood, America, you know, living under the the egypt of Puritanism, I think there are things uh, that would be far more difficult to do, I think, for her. And so, but she also was going to Europe at the right time in a sense that Uh, European filmmakers were really trying to compete with Hollywood. So getting her supposedly a Hollywood star will really help them, you know, compete with with Hollywood, with American film industry. So in that sense, uh, she was regarded as a real talent, a scoop for European filmmakers. And that way she was managed to do quite well uh, in that environment.
0: Right. And a lot of her roles were as a love interest. And yet she couldn't have an on-screen romance with any of these other actors because they were playing, you know, in Yellowface, or they were playing a white person. And so she was always her character was always put to death. Uh,
1: yes. I mean, she wow. yeah,
0: she always had like this tragic ending. And also yeah. she could not have romantic involvement with her co-stars. Can you explain a little bit why?
1: People at the time, the audience, uh, were not really comfortable uh, seeing interracial kissing, for instance. And of course, you know, Hollywood, uh, you can say Hollywood started that or the audience demanded that in a sense that it's kind of, you know, it's mutual, re- mutually reinforcing the, the general public sentiment against uh, miscegenation. let's just say. And uh, Hollywood films also kind of had the rule against interracial kissing or romance. So for, for rom-com, you know, romantic comedy or tragedy, when there's no kiss, then, you know, one film critic said uh, kiss is like um, the soul of 20th century love, right? Uh, it's not just about kissing. It's the, it's the charm. It's, it's everything that kind of symbolized that. So without right. that, it's, it's, it's to, like an
0: allusion to, to sexual activity, right?
1: Exactly, exactly. So um, so she starred she in a number of European films even. But interestingly, a lot of the, the screenwriters initially will write those kissing scenes. But when it came to shooting, the, they will still you know, either be avoided or, or be cut eventually. And so she was, you know, she had the famous line. She said, I'm a woman, you know, who would die a thousand times, right? And she literally, you know, her characters.
0: You write in your book that racial mimicry lies at the heart of the American identity. And you write, in his studies of classic American literature, D.H. Lawrence astutely identified two streaks of the American character. First, Americans had an awkward tendency to define themselves by what they were not. They were not Indians, Blacks, Mexicans, or Chinese. Second, they had been continually haunted by the fatal dilemma of wanting to have things both ways. They abhorred the Indians, driving them off land and killing them in the process. But they also wanted to play Indian, savoring the freedom and spirit of those noble savages. Such a dialectic of simultaneous repulsion and desire showed up again and again in America's racial imagination and constituted the foundation of its art and literature. So in this sense, you bring in racism, not just against Asian people, not just against Black people or Indians, but sort of this Petri dish of hate that would you say it started with cinema or would you say it started with the culture or did they feed off of each other tell me tell me about that discovery or that part of oh, your writing
1: absolutely i mean it didn't start with hollywood by no means uh, that's why i said racial mimicry really, really lies in a Hollywood american culture mm-hmm. in a sense um look at the the founding of this nation the positive tea party right we're talking about a A bunch of Bostonians dressed up as Mohawk Indians and uh, granting kind of stage, you know, Mohawk words (laughs) while dumping chairs of tea into the harbor. So the very foundation. But when we come to, say, American culture in general, after that kind of seminal moment, blackface, for instance, in the middle 19th century uh, was really the first, I think, form of uh, mass entertainment in the United States. Because prior to that, American, as a puritan nation, as you know, there wasn't a lot of fun, right? <laughs> you can't drink, you can't have theater, cannot have theater and all that. European travelers coming to America said, like, oh, what a jewelry country, you know? <laughs> There's no fun going on. And blackface, white actors doing kind of Negro characters, so-called, was really the first form of uh, mass entertainment. And Hollywood film taking over, you know, becoming the kind of dominant, new dominant form of entertainment follow that tradition. So that's why in the beginning, following blackface, film will do the same thing. And uh, in those years, as you know, one side story I told in this book was really about in what, in what ways, for instance, Chinatown was deeply tied to the birth of Hollywood, in a sense, because Chinatown, given its kind of exotic setting, the curiosity shops, you know, barbecue porks hanging on the window and uh, people dressed in different clothes. So filmmakers in those years uh, didn't really need to beat the bad traffic in LA in those years. And they just, you know, hop over (laughs) to Chinatown because it's ready-made set for them. So as you see, uh, that that kind of exoticism. Uh, But of course, in real life, as just pointed out, the 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act and anti-Chinese violence and everything. So there was this kind of uh, what I call a love and hate relationship in Americans' imagination uh, of the other. For instance, my earlier book on on Charlie Chan was a really example of that. Charlie Chan was born uh, as a character right, Uh, in 1925, and right after the passage of the Johnson Reed Act, when the country literally shut its door to the so-called foreigners. Uh, including like Southern Europeans, Italians, Polish, you name it, uh, Japanese and Chinese. And then lo and behold, there was a kind of lovable, funny Chinese character stumbling on stage. So in reality, they want to stop all the Chinese or, you know, these ethnic minorities from coming. On the other hand, on screen, they love playing them and watching them. So this is really kind of American dilemma, the psyche of American culture that I'm trying to... Uh, examine uh, in in this kind of, in my trilogy.
0: Yeah, speaking of the trilogy, how did your earlier biographies on Charlie Chan or this these these other books on Charlie Chan and the original Siamese twins help you in writing this book?
1: Oh, this is a trilogy in a sense that's because uh, the theme not really repeats itself, but uh, really, uh, I'm really kind of concerned or interested in telling this epic journey of Asian Americans uh, in, in the making of American culture. Racism against them, on the other hand, this kind of racial imagination also was the driving force behind American uh, art and literature and the culture in general. So racial imagination, of course, is racist. But on the other hand, it was really also the driving engine of American artistic imagination uh, in many ways.
0: A lot of our audience is interested in how to form a biography or how to how to come at a biography. And in this case, I felt that this was a cultural biography in addition to telling Anna Mae Wong's story. What advice do you have for other biographers who want to write about an ethnic minority? What did you learn along this process that maybe some of the do's and don'ts of, of mm-hmm. writing a biography like this?
1: So, uh, so Jenny, this is a very odd thing to say. That um, as somebody who has written at least three biographies, I'm actually not interested in biography <laughs> per se. Like you say, you know, the the story of that person I'm describing. Yes, the stories is of course initially that attract me. What I'm most interested in is really what you know made them do these things and what stopped them, right? A few years ago, I was partnering with a film director, you know, writing a screenplay. And one thing he taught me was that he said, there's a very simple rule in, in you know, in film, making a film, the story. He said, um, first of all, what does the character want? You know, what's the problem? Or does what does the character want? The second one is what stops him from getting what he wants, right? And the third thing is, then what did he do to get it? <laughs> so that kind of narrative... Of course, behind this simple outline, there's a lot of background stories and it's really the context in which, you know, these stories unfold. So without this context, nothing will really make sense. Or, you know, without context, then our, any biography is very simple. The character was born and did all sorts of things and the character passed away. Uh, our lives, you know, our story is all the same. Everybody's story is all, almost the same unless you're Jesus Christ. Otherwise human story, you know, stories are about the same, but it's the context in which the story takes place that really makes the difference. And that's why I think cultural biography versus the individual biography, there's always this kind of of war, this tangle. So for a biographer, it's really it's like cooking, you know, what ingredients you put in and you kind of keep the that balance to me is crucial, at least as you know, that's really my take on. On this genre of biography.
0: Speaking of context, Anna Mae Wong had never been to China until the nineteen 19- Yeah, the 1930s. Right. Thank mm-hmm. you. And as a Chinese American, she got mixed reviews during her five months that she spent there. Why do you think Chinese people didn't embrace her wholeheartedly?
1: From the get go, Chinese press was very. Fascinated, following her every step, because knowing that there's actually a Chinese icon, American or European in American or European cinema, was a, you know, was a good good press uh, for the journals and everything. So when she arrived in Shanghai um, in 1936, right before the Sino-Japanese War, which will basically change everything for, for the country and later on for the world. She, like you said, she, you know, got very mixed reactions. Uh, On the one hand, people are celebrating her, welcoming her as a global icon. On the other hand, a lot of people are kind of not happy about some of the roles uh, she played. She thought, you know, she perpetuated uh, these stereotypes. So just give an example. I'm not saying nothing has changed, but a lot of the, you know, cultural attitudes, the sentiments, uh, they can live on, right, as you know. Uh, before my book was, you know, book on anime one was even published, uh, we received a contract for the Chinese edition. So we signed a contract and uh, the translator started translation already. And last night I got this news because the same press who's was, you know, doing this book was also, you know, issuing the new edition of the Charlie Chang translation. So just a few years ago, I was Chinese edition of the Charlie Chang book came out. I went to the Shanghai you know, Literary Festival and everything. Everything was going fine. The people liked the book a lot. And now the new issue, you know, the editor just emailed me last night, was giving me the bad news that, that the internal censor came down on the Charlie Chan book because just materials related, historical materials related to kind of anti-Chinese sentiments. But the mere kind of you know, the exhibition you know, presentation of historical facts related to humiliations of Chinese and American media or portrayal of anti-Chinese violence even in the United States became a very sensitive topic that people would not not like to see these materials. So the internal censor, you know, gave gave a thumb down on the Charlie Chan book. As a result, so the editor asked on the side, like, what about this Anime One book we just signed on? It's the same thing, of course. So we are talking about Chinese attitude toward, you know, representation of China or Chinese culture in the West and how touchy this topic is. So that's, I guess, uh, to answer what happened in 1930s, we can also look at what's happening now, in a sense, how this, you know, cultural psyche, since we're comparing these two cultures, you know, racism, American culture, and the Chinese sensitivity uh, and the censorship, uh, you know, of these issues.
0: Where are the Anna Mae Wong papers held?
1: Great question. So I wrote this book um, in the midst of pandemic. Ideally, you know, I could have traveled. Most of the letters, for instance, she had like over 200 letters uh, to a good friend, Carl Van Calvin McTon, Carl Van wife, uh, Fania. So she had like about 200 letters held at the Beinecke Library at Yale. And these are really extraordinary. Letters, because one thing I discovered doing research and writing this book, and this is something not everybody will talk about or not a lot of people talk about, is that she's actually a great writer. She's funny, stylistic. So one point my editor, uh, reading the manuscript, I just turned in and he called me said, Yunta, do you think Anime Wang has a ghostwriter? <laughs> oh, come on, Bob, nobody nobody has a ghostwriter to, to write You know, letters to friends. And that's one thing. So she's known as a, a film star, a fashion icon, who's also somebody dabbled in cookbooks and all that. But one thing we didn't know is actually she's a very good writer.
0: To what extent did you visit any of her real estate holdings in the United States?
1: Before the book came out, I had an interview with New York Times. You know, they flew a journalist uh, from uh, from Brooklyn. And met me in l a so I you know drove her around, we went to a restaurant. You can look also at also the profile in In addition to the book review, actually New York Times also did an author profile based on that interview. so i I, I drove uh, Casey Schwartz, uh, who's a writer herself around uh, to see the um, anime one, you know the last addresses of her place, and uh, they're still around in Santa Monica.
0: Well, the way you describe how she lived and the places she lived. It felt very palpable that you had been there or had seen firsthand.
1: Oh, absolutely! I'm yeah, Chinese. I, I believe in Feng Shui, so without seeing those places, you wouldn't get an accurate measure of the sentiment. In a way, it's a joke, but on the other hand, it's not.
0: So, to what extent did you visit her hometown in in China? And when I say hometown, I mean where her family was from,
1: right? Ancestral land. So I did that with every. I should say subject or person that I, I wrote about, right? With Charlie Chan, because behind Charlie Chan, the film icon, there was the real Honolulu detective, Chan Apana. So I went to visit his house uh, in Kaimuki and his graveyard as well. And with the same with Siamese twins, you know, their farms are still in Mount Airy in North Carolina and, uh, and their graves and the family still living on those two farms, uh, even spending one night uh, camping out uh, on their farm, just to say, you know, to get a sense of the Feng Shui. But I was really like, for when the our twins, for instance, I mean, would wouldn't you do it? Like, you wouldn't you be curious to say, all those years they're living there, the conjoined twins, right, married to white two white sisters, having twenty one children, all those years living on those two farms, like what noises there will be during the night? You know, where's the moon and the, the sound? So so I that's why you know I want to take this kind of, make these field trips. And I think these are really important for a biographer. Not just the interviews. I think sometimes it's really the sound of the the ambience of the land and the environment that may tell you more about their struggles, about their feelings.
0: Anna Mae Wong was a beautiful woman. And I'm sure you came across countless images of her. In this book, you have images In each chapter, like to to start the chapters and then throughout the pages of the book, how did you decide which images to include?
1: Well, first of all, images that I like, (laughs) images that can tell better stories themselves. You know, they can stand on their own, but also images, realistically, that I can afford, right? Because some of the images are really expensive uh, to clear the permissions for, and uh, we're dealing with kind of capitalist, uh, almost a monopoly of certain images. It's a balance, it's like a chess game. Uh, You have to (laughs) think very carefully, look at your budget and what you can include uh, and what's the best for the book or for the story.
0: In the acknowledgement section of this book, you write that you were near Wuhan during the start of the pandemic and that your wife and child remained there. Have you been able to reunite with your family?
1: Well, yes. After three years, so I didn't see Henry, my 3 uh, for three years. I said goodbye without knowing that you know I was there on, on a Chinese holiday and to just say a simple goodbye. I thought, oh, Daddy will be back in about a month <laughs> to pick you up. But then, lo and behold, you know, I didn't see him again for three years until he was six. So, so writing that book in this period, we are talking about you know, seems like Asian cinema. We're talking about Michelle Yeoh winning Oscar. We're talking about Crazy Rich Asians, you know, blockbuster film, uh, the rise of Korean cinema, Netflix, you know, Squeak Game, and everything seems like a good moment for Asian Americans, but not really in some sense, right? Uh, you know, during the pandemic, the, the attack on Chinese in Chinatown, you know, calling COVID the like Kong flu and all everything. So, um, so this is really, I think, the driving force behind. My writing the book, in a sense, everybody, of course, you know, is uh, attracted to glamour and she's definitely glamorous. She's beautiful. Her the rise from Lunderman's daughter to a global icon is so a spectacular story, but I'm more interested in kind of looking what, what lies underneath the glamour and, uh, what, you know, the pain and the struggle and everything. So I'm not saying I'm, I'm kind of pessimistic, but but I'm, I just, uh, as a biographer, I think we need to to be uh, faithful to facts and history. And uh, history, of course, is not always pleasant, to put it mildly.
0: A hundred percent. Well, thank you so much.
1: Well, thank you, Jenny.
0: That was my conversation with Yunta Huang about his book, Daughter of the Dragon, Anna Mae Wong's Rendezvous with American History. It was published by Live Right Press in August, 2023. This interview was recorded via Zoom on October 30th, 2023. To learn more about bio or to hear other episodes in our podcast series, please visit our website, biographersinternational.org. I'm bio member Jenny Skoog in New York City. Alani Hodge created our theme music. And until next time, thanks so much for listening. Have a great week.